Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mill Podcast. On today's episode, we got another good one for you. We're going to open with some World Cup soccer talk. I know you may not like soccer, you may not even care about it, or what's been going on in the World Cup, but I think it has captivated a lot of people in the nation and certainly around the world. So me and Drew are going to discuss it, especially the U.S. men's national team, what we should hope from them going forward, and then we're also going to pick the semifinal games and then I'm going to talk to Andrew Sullivan about some college football we're going to give our playoff predictions how it's going to play out also talk about the Heisman I know the Heisman's already happened we already predicted Caleb Williams was going to win but I'm going to leave that in there anyways and then we talk about some transfer portal stuff and what to look forward as we go now towards next season pretty much and then finally I'm going to close with my brother not Drew but Charlie the best Miller brother coming on and we are doing another draft this time a draft of holiday tra- traditions with Christmas coming up you'll certainly enjoy listening to him so appreciate everyone listening once again uh, let's get into the episode all right for the open today we are talking World Cup I know I'm jumping on this a little late we're already at the point of the semifinals so only four teams left but I think it's maybe better to talk about it at the end than the beginning because more people have probably started watching the games, kind of gotten into it a little more. I know for me and our family, uh, Drew is with me here to discuss the World Cup. He's kind of the in-house soccer expert, I guess you would say. And by that, I just mean he keeps up with it more than any of us and actually has a favorite team in Manchester City. But we have gotten into the World Cup most of the years we've been able to kind of follow along, especially I remember back in 2014 when the USA kind of made a run to the round of 16 like they did this year. Um, and really, I mean, just to start, I think the World Cup in general is a, is a sporting event. If you don't like soccer at all, at least watch this one because it's exciting every match. And what makes it different than any other sporting event is that, you know, it's it's there's patriotism involved. Every country, this is their most important sporting event except for us, really. And I think we're getting to a point to where we care more and more about it. But you, I think the most impressive thing to me is you see how much effort and energy these players put in and the fans care more than they almost do. So, I mean, I don't know about you, Drew, but to me, the World Cup is just probably the, the best sporting event for the world because of how much comes along with it, not just what happens on the soccer field. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And you made a good point about the fans. If you just watch the fans, I mean, the players show emotions, but, you know, when they pan to the crowd in the stands, they're in tears half the game because uh, they score a goal, they think they've won it, and they're crying tears of joy. And then the other team scores a miraculous goal in like the last 10 minutes of the game. And then they're crying tears of sadness because they're about to go into extra time and penalties, and then they lose and everyone's distraught or everyone's just uh, full of joy. And, you know, even watching it on your couch at home and and looking at it through the TV, you can feel that emotion. And that just, again, goes to show how much it means to these countries and and to the players and to the fans. And I think that's why, you know, really the whole world is able to get behind this tournament. And I wish we could see this in some other sports, but uh, none of the other sports are as global as soccer yet, but maybe we'll get there one day. Yeah, and to kind of segue into what I want to start with, you know, the United States has never been a a powerhouse in soccer. I mean, we're not going to sugarcoat it, but, you know, we have made some noise in some World Cups, and this year was, you know, the first time since 2014 we were in the World Cup, but also the first time in a long time we actually thought we had a pretty good team that could maybe stack up against some of the world powers. Not saying we were going to win, but at least 
the talent level and the the you know the play on the field would would be something we could be proud of and I think we saw that bear out for the most part um USA making it to the round of 16 advancing out of the group stage and then losing 3-1 to the Netherlands obviously is not the result that they wanted but I do think we saw some some hope I think for the future so let's start with the good first Drew what do you like about this team and and what should if you do if you would give a you know a kind of a pitch for people to watch America going forward what is the hope that this team could be good well, first off, we're really young and already pretty solid. So there's room for improvement, definitely. Um, another thing is the style of soccer U.S. plays is a little different than some of the other powerhouse countries in that we like to play um, we like to play very quick, make a lot of passes deep uh, to have our forwards chase down. We have a good midfield that is able to run and press and, and make the other team turn over in possession. And then we're able to keep possession pretty well and then with speed are able to attack the goal. And that gives some of these countries known for great defenses and good soccer some problems. And as our players get better, like I said, they're super young, they're going to get better. Um, that's going to become even harder to stop for some of these other countries. You don't see that style of play as often so those two things are are what I would say to watch for this team in the future their potential and in their style of play yeah if you just picked up on the World Cup this year especially for the United States the the thing that I think I noticed the most is how young all of our star players are so that is really good news going forward is that we made the round of 16 this year and they're all probably mid to early 20s and you know you talked about you know, the midfield, and we have three West young guys, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, and Eunice Musa. They're all going to just continue to get better, um, and I think they could end up being one of the better midfields in the world. At least, I mean, is that is that an accurate statement? I would say that – I mean, I, I think they have the potential to get there. You know, they're certainly really, really good young players from other countries, but those three are all young and all going to improve and are playing in, in big clubs across different leagues across the world, so – you know, I definitely think the potential is there for that. Yeah, and, you know, obviously, if you're just picking up, we see the young talent. You see that we could have potential, but yet we still got beat by the Netherlands pretty soundly. And that's kind of where I want to go with this is I have my opinions on what I think we could have done better, but I also understand that we're just maybe not there yet. And that's just the that's the definite answer. So... You know, looking around at these other teams and you look at the the Argentinas and Messi and the Brazils with Neymar and Portugal and France, you know, the skill level just seems to be a head and shoulders above. Plus, they all have that one name brand soccer player. And we'll kind of talk about the teams left going forward. And America is just kind of searching for that. And so, you know, I'll, I'll give it up to you. Maybe you have some more things that you see but what are some areas that america has to improve in if we want to actually compete for a fifa world cup uh, i think the biggest thing if especially in the loss to netherlands and, and even with wales in the first game they played in the world cup the big thing they need to get is experience and of course they can't have that because for a lot of them uh, actually everyone but one player on the team and that was deandre yedlin um, no one had ever been in a World Cup before or really, really high-level international soccer other than I would probably say Pulisic. Um, 
so they they didn't have the experience and that definitely showed up in in the Netherlands game for sure but then also just the the talent level Netherlands had more all-around talent on their team and we're going to improve but I think I think it's going to take some of these young guys on the team now to step up and, and become superstars but even with the roster we have now, if they reach their full potential, I still think we are going to need more young talent coming up um, to further reinforce some positions we're weak at and, and some positions that we even had old guys filling and they're about to age out. So we just more talent, more experience. That will come some with time. But I think this is going to, to be – probably another rebuilding process for the next four to eight years and who, who knows we may never get there but maybe we'll start to see more emphasis put on uh, u.s soccer get more homegrown talent and i think the good thing for the u.s is that we're going to see a bigger push towards just you know, performing for the the country for the longest time i think it's just been let's make american soccer relevant like let's get players into the premier league and we're, we're starting to do that so now i think you know a lot of these players like the the messies the neymars you know they care about playing for their country for sure but they also have their own kind of things that make them famous for who they are personally americans don't really have that and so i think that's going to allow them to put all their energy into a world cup run kind of like we're seeing with morocco like none of those guys are necessarily famous outside of the world cup and so you see all their energy go into to this one event and i think the chemistry with the u.s will only grow because the all these guys are playing together and growing up together so i think there is a lot of hope for the future but i do think the one area we really are missing and this is not a new take anybody who watched could see we got to find guys who can put the ball in the back of the net and we don't really have that. We have a lot of guys, like you said, who can run around, play in the midfield. You have Pulisic, who we haven't even talked about, but he was obviously the, the most talented American player, just setting everyone up. Plus, he has some scoring ability himself. But as far as a guy like Ronaldo, Neymar, Mbappe, Messi, we just don't really have a guy to put the ball in the back of the net. And we're going to have to find that if we want to compete in the World Cup. And, you know, we may never show up like every year like some of these other countries do but I do think we're heading to a point to where we can go on a run like Morocco has this season and maybe get to the final four so I think that's what's exciting and and you know I know people are listening to this and like I still am not going to care about soccer but just just now from a standpoint of like why you should watch it to me it's it's the the easiest sporting event to watch from a keep your attention span the whole time perspective because it's 90 minutes so it's not super long there's only two halves and there's no timeout. So for 45 minutes, they play consecutively. And I know a lot of people say, well, it's just kicking the ball around a lot. But truly, while watching a soccer game, from my point of view, there's only about 10 to 15 minutes maybe total added together where they're just kicking it around. And even though there aren't a lot of goals scored, a lot of it is building up to the point where they can try. So, you know, I think it's if you haven't watched the World Cup game, I mean, obviously club soccer is not as exciting, but the, these get really exciting. Uh, and especially as we get into the more serious games, like anyone who watched USA and Iran and then the, the, the round of 16 game, it was, it was pretty on pins and needles throughout the entire game. So I would encourage you to check it out. All right, now I'm going to talk about, or we're going to discuss kind of the final four and how we got here because America, as I mentioned, is not the powerhouse in soccer. So we're down to the final four. It's Argentina. Um, they're going to be taking on Croatia. And then in the other side of the bracket, Morocco and um, France. And I, I would say 
you know, we saw some surprises in the group stage, Drew, but as far as the final eight goes, I think we had most of the the teams we expected. You maybe except Spain, who also got put out by Morocco, and we're going to talk about. But you know, you had Brazil, Argentina, uh, Netherlands, uh, France, England, Portugal. So kind of the expected ones. But then we kind of saw some of those get upset, and we saw Brazil lose to Croatia on penalties. They kind of came from behind late. We saw Argentina barely squeak past Netherlands, and then we saw Morocco, who is definitely the Cinderella story, beat Portugal, and then France, the the reigning World Cup champions, um, make it as well. So we've kind of seen the, some of the favorites in, but also some Cinderella stories. So let's start with the ones that got knocked out. We 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 were talking about off air. The international is just is different because they don't play together all the time. It's a different style of play. It's kind of like FIBA basketball. So for Brazil and Portugal, what do you think kind of went wrong there for both of those teams and why they, they exited a little early? Um, with the Brazil and Croatia game, it was kind of back and forth. Croatia is a very experienced team, and they gave Brazil all Brazil could handle, even though Brazil probably up to that point, maybe besides France, France has been very good, but Brazil probably was the team that looked the best in the whole World Cup in their group stage matches and in their round of 16 match, which they won handedly. And I think Croatia's experience bothered Brazil, but then Brazil got a goal. They were winning uh, one to nothing. And and then you see uh, they kind of fell asleep. Their defense kind of fell asleep. Their whole team, I think, felt they had won it. And Croatia did not go away. They got a goal in. And then if you watch the extra time, uh, the momentum was kind of swinging which way, but you just kind of felt that Croatia was going to find a way to win it. And it goes to penalties, and, of course, Croatia wins the shootout. As for uh, Portugal, who pretty much everyone expected to probably make the semifinals, especially once they were matched up with Morocco, um, they just did not look good. They weren't creating a lot. Morocco's defense has been very good in this tournament, and I think, you know, they're getting all the credit they deserve, but I think it surprised Portugal some, and and they weren't ready for that. And Morocco, they are playing as a team right now for their country, and they seem like they just wanted it more than Portugal and as well as Spain, who they played in the first round. They just want it that bad. And so, yeah, I think both those teams – just weren't as tough as they needed to be, and they they faced some experienced and resilient teams who got the best of them late in the game. So I would say that that's probably the reasons why they lost. And in international ball, more than anything, I think we see, just from my opinion, and you can translate this across sports to where we see in the Olympics with basketball, whatever team sport you want to talk about, that – you can't just amass talent in the international level. It's, I mean, you're, you have to handpick whoever is from your country. And so that does give an advantage to some of these teams like Brazil and, and France and Portugal that are naturally good at soccer. But I think when you put them together this quickly, sometimes that goes away. And we've seen that with USA basketball where they, they don't blow out anybody anymore just because a lot of these other countries focus on playing together a lot more. Um, and, you know, obviously our NBA players are so busy and they're not able to play together a lot. But I think in the World Cup, we're seeing that experience, veterans, and then playing together as a team and having a strong defense will get you a long way. And especially for um, 
Croatia and Morocco, that's kind of their formula. And we almost saw Netherlands do the same thing, just a very fundamental team. And they were able to, you know, take uh, Argentina uh, with Messi to, to penalties. And so I think that's kind of the formula uh, more important in the World Cup than necessarily talent. Is that kind of your read as well? Yeah, I would definitely agree. That was that was a pretty accurate assessment. It seems like defense, um, even if you may not necessarily have the talent level of the other team, if you play together, if you don't give the ball over in spots to where it can cause danger for your team and give the, the opposition opportunity to score and you have a solid defense, you're going to get far in the World Cup. Um, but at the end of the day, it is about putting the ball in the back of the net. And unless it's a 0-0 and, they, and you go to penalties, you're going to need someone to score. And if you put enough pressure on your opposition, eventually a goal will come. And what we see in every sport, but I think especially in soccer and in international soccer, is that you have momentum swings. And we talk about momentum a lot in, in basketball and even football, but you feel that in soccer. You just you feel when a team is getting close to a goal and then usually it, it, it will come in the next 10 minutes or so when you start thinking, oh, they look like they're about to score. So momentum matters. And these teams that play with a lot of energy and emotion and are able to keep the other team from scoring, eventually a goal is going to get their, go their way if they put enough pressure on, on the defense. And I think that's what you've seen with some of these upsets is momentum changes and the other team – you know, maybe they fall asleep or they start to get a little nervous. And just like that, there's a goal scored. And then you have the upset. I think that's a good assessment as well. And, you know, I think that's one reason we've seen some of these defensive-minded teams that play together kind of move through is because if you don't get up on them early, they just get more and more momentum. They muck the game up, and that's what they want to play. I think Brazil jumped out to, you know, like a 4 nothing lead within 20 minutes against Switzerland. I mean, it's over. And then they can kind of just – they get their energy going. They can kind of showboat. And, it, you know, it's at that point they don't have to worry about as much, you know, the little things. But in a 0-0 game, a 1-0 game where one goal can change it against Croatia, they just kept coming – and those fundamentals matter at that point. And Brazil is not as much focused on those. Let's, let's just be honest. Um, and you, same for Portugal when it didn't go their way and they couldn't get a goal in. Morocco kind of took advantage of that. And then they could sit back and play defense when, when they got the early goal. So moving into the semifinals and, and predicting what's going to happen. I think conventional wisdom would say, look, okay, it's been a nice run for Morocco. Croatia, you know, they it's been a nice run as well, but they can't keep having these, you know, late comebacks and then put, pushing it to penalties so Argentina and France make sense as as the most talented teams and having Messi and Mbappe, probably the two best players in the world. So I'm going to ask you just real simply, you know, who do you think is going to win and why? And I think these this answer is a little more complicated than maybe, you know, the the conventional wisdom says. Yeah, so I'm going to start with the, the France and Morocco game, picking that one because that one's a little easier for me. Morocco has been super hot. They they have the momentum right now. They're playing with a lot of energy, a lot of heart. Like we were talking about, they have a strong defense, and they pass well. They don't necessarily keep a lot of the ball, but that's just how they play. They let the other team have the ball, basically. But then they look, and they, they're trying to, to capitalize on mistakes made by the other team. But to me, France just has too much class. And a lot of people said that about Portugal – and we saw how that game went. 
But to me, France is a little different than Portugal because although Portugal has scored some goals, France has been more consistent. And to me, their their players, you know, between Kylian Mbappe, most people probably know him. There's another striker they have. His name is Olivier Giroud. He recently just uh, now has the record for the most goals scored in French international play. And they have several midfielders who can score. But to me, one of those guys has to give you a goal in a game. Like, that, you just can't stop them from scoring. Like, one of them is going to score. And Morocco may be able to, to score one or two goals if France makes some mistakes. But that's if France makes mistakes. But to me, the winner of that game will be France. So I'm, I'm picking France for that one. The Croatia and Argentina game, to me, is a lot more difficult. To, to me, this one can go either way. Argentina, I would say, probably has more talent overall. But Croatia has several good players, and they pass really well. They don't make mistakes. I don't think I've seen them make a mistake all tournament. Um, they've had goals scored on them, but, you know, you can't always keep the team, other team from scoring. Spectacular things happen. But they just don't make mistakes, and that's part of winning, in, in, especially in the World Cup. But Argentina is, is attacking, and they have Messi – so I just have a really hard time picking against Messi in the semifinals of a World Cup. He's never won a World Cup, so I know he wants this, and his teammates want it for him. Um, so I think that 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 match can go either way, and I'd hate to pick against Croatia with how they've been playing and how bad Argentina have looked at times. But maybe a little biased here, but I I, I can't pick against Messi in this situation. So I'm going with Argentina as the winner of that. And it will be a nail-biter, I'm predicting. Yeah, with the way the World Cup has gone for Croatia, you just don't see them getting blown out. And they've been here before. That's the thing about the World Cup is experience matters. And, you know, it's funny. You pick France in the first one. If they win and Croatia wins, we have a rematch of the last World Cup, which is is kind of shocking because that doesn't happen since there's normally four years in between World Cups and a lot can change. But here they are both on the verge of making it back to the championship match. I'm with you, I think. You know, Morocco, They, I think they kind of got... It seems like they should have gotten beaten in both of those previous games. But I think if you look at it actually analytically, Spain was not playing very well. They didn't prove... You know, they scored seven goals against Costa Rica. But after that, they didn't really seem like they had anybody who could put the ball in the back of the net, kind of similar to the U.S., and it kind of matched up well with Morocco. The Portugal one's a little more difficult because they did just they, – they blew out um, uh, Switzerland in the game before. But I think that was just a case of, you know, Morocco's really good defensively and Portugal had a lot of stuff going on. And I don't know. But I do think France is more of a team. They have Giroud and Mbappe, like you said, who are the top two goal scorers tied with Messi. Uh, well, Mbappe's first by himself with five, and then Giroud's tied with Messi for second with four. And like you say, I just don't see them being able to hold them off the board for a full 90 minutes. So they're going to have to score as well, and I don't know if they can keep up. On the other end, like it, I haven't really been impressed with Argentina, to be honest. I mean, Messi is really, to me, the only player that stands out, and you know, he is insanely good. And, you know, he's tied for fourth in assist and tied for second in goal. So he creates all their chances. And so to me, Croatia as an experienced team, I know everybody says they try to do this, but they're going to be able to kind of hold him back, I think, and maybe focus a little more on him and make some of these other guys score. 
So it's really difficult because I do think if it gets to penalties again or it gets late, I, Croatia is the favorite because their goalkeeper is, is really good too. I know Argentina's is as well. But he's now already gone through penalties twice, and I'm not betting on him. So I'm with you. I'd probably lean the favorites in France and Argentina. But if they're able to contain Messi, I would not see be surprised to see a, a France and Croatia uh, rematch in the World Cup final, which I think – you know, people probably wouldn't care about, but it, it would be an interesting matchup to see, you know, it, it the same one we saw two years ago where France kind of dominated that that game. Um, so I kind of want to ask, you know, to close about, you know, the players that everyone kind of knows about. And, you know, we saw Neymar take it, score a great goal to, to seemingly put them in the semis and then Croatia erased that. We've seen Mbappe have a great tournament. Messi arguably has been the best overall player for his team. Ronaldo kind of had a sad story getting benched and then knocked out of the World Cup. In your opinion right now, for those who maybe aren't soccer fans or are, you know, who's kind of the guy you would say right now in the soccer landscape? And I'm not meaning like, you know, you can say best player, but who is the guy that is going to most valuable to, to the soccer world and to their teams? Um, I would say recently it's probably been Messi for his his club. He's been playing very well in the the French league, and then he's dominating here at the World Cup. Um, Kylian Mbappe was struggling going into this World Cup, but he has turned that around dramatically. I mean, he's probably been besides Messi, Kylian Mbappe has been so valuable for the French team. Uh, so. Yeah, he's young as well. He's going to continue to get better. He's not even in his prime yet. And so I think him going forward, he's the future of football. He's the future, you know, Messi, Ronaldo, even though he doesn't really play like either of them. But he's that's just how talented he is. So I'd say him. And as for Ronaldo, I think we're seeing him um, drop off. So it, there's rumors of him going to – the Saudi Arabian League, and at that point, his career is basically over if he goes there. Uh, Messi is aging, still great. Obviously, he's tearing up the World Cup, but it's only a matter of time before he calls it quits. Uh, Neymar is was once again injured in this World Cup. I wouldn't be surprised if injuries start to, to shorten his career a little bit. And he may not be in another World Cup. This is definitely probably Messi and Ronaldo's last. So, Kylian Mbappe is the, the future face of football, and he's moving into that role right now. And I would say a, a, a country to watch, though, because um, I feel like it's appropriate to bring this up, a country to watch in the future is England, in my opinion. Uh, they have several good young players. Uh, they got to get some things figured out with their manager, in my opinion, and their style of play and who they play. But to me, they have some extremely good young talent that could potentially be the faces of football. Um, two to name some are Phil Foden and uh, Buki Osaka. So those two guys right there I think can be really good for England. I think as a country as a whole, they could be one to watch in probably the next World Cup. And then, like we were saying, USA as well. Um, I think some of those guys can be good. Not faces of football, but uh, – just want to hype us up again before we close. 
Yeah, I think that's a good note to end on. I think you hit it pretty perfectly. You know, Messi is still probably the one that everybody knows and it's going to be the face for a couple more years, and especially if he's able to pull Argentina through to a World Cup victory. But Mbappe, I think, is definitely the best overall talent going forward. He scores goals. Like, I mean, you can just tell watching him that there's nobody on the field as skilled as he is and as athletic. But I think you made a good point to bring up England because they're not in the semifinals, but they barely got beat by France, who I think should be the favorite to win the World Cup. And, you know, they played U.S. to a 0-0 draw. And, you know, everybody was kind of joking about that and how England can't beat U.S., you know, whether we're talking about the Revolutionary War or in soccer. But they are very talented and very skilled. And I think that's going to be interesting to see if we and them kind of go on a similar path. Obviously, they're a little bit ahead of us in the skill department and talent department. But I think both, both countries are kind of looking up and maybe could catch some of these powerhouses in Europe and in in South America that have been good for for a while but great job breaking it down Drew I think you know we we both kind of see eye to eye on how the World Cup uh, finals are going to go and I would encourage everyone to watch Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be the semifinal matches and then I think the World Cup final will probably be on Saturday or, or Sunday this weekend but um appreciate everyone listening to this hopefully we didn't bore you too much with the World Cup stuff um, I would encourage you, as we talked about in the open, to watch the final, see how much this means to the countries, especially if Morocco is able to pull through because they kind of they're going to have the whole of Africa, Asia pulling for them at this point. Um, and it's just a lot of emotion uh, in whoever wins the World Cup. And hopefully America can get there. And one thing we didn't discuss is next World Cup in 2026 will be hosted by us. So a lot of added pressure and a lot of added fanfare, hopefully for our country when that happens. All right, thanks, Drew, for coming on once again. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll go straight into our college football segment. Me and Sully are going to talk about the coaching carousel, what ha- what will happen in the playoff, and kind of the transfer portal, and what we think will happen going into next year. So we'll take a quick break, and then we'll be back with that. All right, let's talk about some college football, probably for – the last time in a while. We might do a preview of the national championship game and talk about some more offseason stuff if it arises, but this is kind of the last headline cycle before we kind of get into the offseason for college football. The college football playoff has been announced, and as I talked about last week, it went about as we expected. USC and TCU both lost, but the committee kept TCU in uh, and now added Ohio State instead of USC. Uh, we're also going to talk about the coaching carousel and the transfer portal here in a minute, but let's start still with this season. So, Sully, obviously, you know, it, it was kind of by the end of the championship Saturday, we knew the teams who had a chance. And they committee ranked Ohio State over Alabama the previous week, so it was pretty obvious that's who was going to get in if one of those teams slipped. So, you know, do you think the best four teams got in and it kind of shook out the way you, I mean, obviously USC, if they win is in, but with that loss, is this kind of the best outcome you think? So do I think the best four teams got in? Probably not, but I also don't think that matters. And I think that goes to a larger discussion about like what's important for college football right now is like, because, because people are, I think more familiar with gambling now and how those types of things works they see like oh tcu would not be favored on a neutral field versus alabama so alabama's better even you know you even saw nick saban kind of tote that argument on saturday night trying to petition the committee to include alabama in the playoff but that is not what the committee has stated is how they're going to view these teams and i think that's the most important thing to start with is did they get the four best teams 
Probably not. I think Tennessee might be better. I think Alabama might be better than maybe a TCU. But also, Bama's resume did not do enough to give them the tiebreaker. Like, I think the resumes have to be comparable. And then you can look at it and say, okay, the resumes are about the same. I know this team's better. I think that's perfectly fine. But when you compare TCU's resume versus Alabama's, even with the loss, they have a top 10 win. Alabama does not. Alabama's best win is also a win that TCU has, which is on the road at Texas. And TCU won in a more convincing fashion on the road. And yes, Bama had two close losses. However, TCU's only loss was very close. And, you know, if we're talking about Ohio State, Ohio State also had that top 10 win against Penn State. So, Yes, if you think teams should be drastically penalized, you know, for losing one bad game, that seems to be why Tennessee fell back in the rankings a little bit, then I understand the argument, but I don't think this is the typical Alabama team that should get the benefit of the doubt like some other teams in the past definitely deserved. No, and I'm not as bullish on like the four best teams didn't get in because I I mentioned this last week when I did the five takeaways from this season that I don't necessarily think that you can make a case that any of the teams outside of Georgia and Michigan are inherently better than any of the other ones. Yeah. Right. So like I, Alabama didn't convince me at all this year that they could beat TCU or USC or Ohio state. I mean, what game did they look good in against a really good team? And even the games that they won, they didn't blow anybody out. So it would for sure be a close game. Now I agree there, they might be better, but this is a year where I have no problem, resume or not, just eye test with them leaving out Alabama. Um, and yeah, Tennessee has a complaint that they should probably be ranked higher as well. So that's why it's like, it's tough because yes, could Alabama and Tennessee both be in the playoff and do just as good? Yeah. But also, I don't think they have a case over TCU or Ohio State. And that's where it gets difficult because that gives credence to this expanded playoff idea, I guess you could say, because any of those teams I think could have given just as good of a showing, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think like you mentioned, you know, when there's so much parody, it's much more difficult to make an argument that one team is so, so much clearly better than, than the others. And I think even this year you could make an argument. I don't know if I'd agree with it, that TCU is still the better team. And, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's, according to the, the Sagarin ratings, which, you know, it's just kind of a average estimate of like team strength. Like it does have Alabama in the top four. However, it also has Texas at eight. And I think that that proves the point that we're talking about, which is team, how a team matches up on a neutral field is not everything. It's part of the picture. But no one is arguing right now that Texas should be a top 10 team in the country. And that's because, yes, they lost a game. They lost two games without Quinn Ewers. They probably should have beaten Alabama. But that's still on their resume. That's still part of what is going to be evaluated. And in the same holds true for Alabama. Are, are they maybe better than TCU? Probably. But I don't think it matters when the resumes aren't particularly close. Yeah, and I would challenge people to think about that in itself of who is better because I personally think you look at the rosters this season. I don't think Alabama is head and shoulders above TCU. I mean, you take away Bryce Young and Will Anderson, 
they're pretty comparable. I mean, TCU has a quarterback who's good. Their wide receivers, I would say, are definitely better they're than better. Alabama's. And besides Jameer Gibbs, their running back is better. So, and defensively, we didn't show anything this year that makes me think we're head and shoulders above them. So, I think even on that alone, this idea that Saban said, and I agree with him, that we'd probably be favored. I don't necessarily think we should be, though. I think TCU would beat us. I, I really do. Now, I mean, that we could beat them easily. But just this season alone, I think you're, it plays more to the name that we have than we're so much better than TCU. And I think that goes for every school. That This season was one that, as I said, is kind of a landscape-changing year for college football. And we'll get into reasons maybe later why that is. But we're changing the narrative on these names, I think, are just going to dominate all the time. Like, that's not going to happen anymore. I, and it could be in certain years, but... The, the margins between the best teams now, I think, are a lot thinner than they have been, you know, five to six to seven years ago. Yeah. And the hardest thing with that is to know, is this an anomaly or is this a pattern? Because right. really all it takes is a couple of the best teams dropping off for a year. And this is what's going to happen. Because when you think about the top of college football for the past few years, it's been Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, and Clemson. Like that's that's been the class of college football. And so, you know, you've had other teams like Michigan's been good the past couple of years. You had LSU make their run. But when a couple of those teams and maybe three teams, depending on how you view Ohio State, fall off of the level they previously were, this is what it's going to look like for a year. Now, the question is, can those programs get back to the level they once were? I, I think with Alabama and Ohio State, I am probably more inclined to believe that's going to happen than Clemson, unless Clemson decides to make some structural changes to the way that they acquire talent in terms of going out into the portal and filling needs. But still, that that shows you like the cyclical nature of college football is going to work itself out over time. And who knows, maybe four years from now, we have four different teams that are completely dominant. But in this period where we're starting to see some of the top teams struggle, th- this is what's going to happen. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I, I think that, you know, no, by no means is Alabama, Ohio State not dominant anymore, at least in the college football playoff conversation, because they both were this year and Ohio State's in. But I just think it's it's a different landscape now for a team to just be so much better than everybody else. And like I so said, I think we're going to get into that why here in a minute. But I think we both agree this year that you know, it wasn't just like, oh, it, they left Alabama out because they're tired of Alabama or Ohio State barely got in because they're Ohio State. It's, you know, they're, that's just kind of the way it felt this year. And there was no great teams. And I'm pretty content with the four that we got. Yeah, definitely. And with those four, now we can we can get in a little bit to the matchups here. So do you think that we're going to get a Georgia-Michigan championship? Do you think either of these teams have a chance to pull off the upset? What What's your kind of entry-level feel on these these two games yeah I think you know we want to make these so complicated and give a lot of talking points and obviously if you're a tv show you need to do that but I really think it's as simple as both teams can upset the other in my opinion Ohio State could easily beat Georgia because we've seen Georgia struggle with high-powered offenses think Alabama last season but I think the Michigan game is a good tell of how that game's going to go. Because to me, Georgia, I mean, we saw it last year. Georgia is just a better, stronger, faster version of Michigan. And I think that if they impose their will on Ohio State early, it's going to be a long game. But Ohio State has the offense to compete. And so if they score points and they're able to throw the ball on Georgia, which Georgia definitely has a weakness there, I think you know it could be a close game. And it's as simple as that. That's how the game's going to go. 
Michigan TCU is the same thing. Michigan doesn't, I think, scare me at all for anybody. I mean, they didn't blow out Purdue, but they kind of just chipped away until at the end of the game. If TCU is able to score points as well and kind of, you know, I don't think Michigan's going to just come out and blow them away offensively. It's going to be who can impose their will. And if TCU can kind of score points and keep the game close, it's going to be, I think TCU has a chance to pull it out. But if Michigan kind of turns them over and runs the ball, it could be a blowout as well. So if I had to pick right now, I probably would say Georgia-Michigan is my pick. But I'm more leaning towards that there's a 50-50 chance one of those teams loses. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much on board with that. I think if I had to pick straight up, I would probably pick those two teams, Georgia and Michigan. But I, I think both these teams, like if you're looking at it like against the spread, I think both these teams are going to be able to play it close. Like Ohio State right now um, is a six-and-a-half-point underdog. TCU started off closer to a 10-point underdog. They've now moved to seven-and-a-half. So there's been some movement there in terms of get, that people think that game might be a little bit closer. And I think just – this is what we've been talking about. And I think Georgia might be the case here of we need to figure out where they're at. But we've talked all year about how there aren't really great teams. You know, everybody is much closer. And I think because Georgia has been pretty dominant down the stretch or in their big games, like against LSU in the SEC Championship, we saw what they did to Tennessee – we forget they have also had their struggles, like the game against Missouri. You know, the game against Kentucky was pretty ugly, and Kentucky could have been in that game if not for some mistakes on their end. So I I just am not fully ready to buy into the fact that Georgia and Michigan are way better than the other two teams in this playoff. And I think if Ohio State does get back and beat Georgia – we're going to have a really interesting situation and one that mirrors a lot like last year when Georgia loses to Alabama in the SEC championship and then comes back in the national championship and is favored again. And we, there was, I think, two camps there. It was like, well, how much does that game mean? It, has Alabama broken Georgia? Do they have, have they cracked the code or can Georgia respond? And we saw what Georgia did. Now, that doesn't mean that Ohio State's going to do the same thing, but I'm not willing to write off Ohio State because of one bad game. And especially against a, a Georgia team that I don't know if they can put up enough points to, you know, play in a shootout with them, even though their offense has been pretty good this year. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not writing off TCU. I'm definitely not writing off Ohio State. It, it would not it would not stun me if either of those teams pull the upset off this year, because I just think that's how the season has gone. Yeah, you make good points, because I do think both games could go either way. And, you know, if we did get Ohio State-Michigan rematch, it'd be interesting to see yeah, how that kind of goes. I mean, I will say last year, like, man, I this I I kind of hated on Alabama earlier, so I feel like I need to come back now. But yeah, like, I really wish that game. Like, it's easy to say, oh, Georgia figured it out, but we didn't have Mechie or Jamison Williams, so I really yeah. wish Bryce had one receiver who could just catch a ball because we didn't have that. But I, we're not here to talk about the past, so. For me, Michigan is the team I'm more concerned about. And it's I'll tell you why. Because Georgia, we've seen them get up for games like this. I know they can impose their will. I mean, I'm still not sold on this Ohio State offense this season. I was more sold last year with Stroud and, and company. Um, you look at that Michigan-Ohio State game, and I think we both feel this way. It looks like Michigan dominated that game, but they did something very un-Michigan-like. And that is they had a lot of big plays. Yeah. And they threw the ball downfield for big plays and they hardly ever do that tcu secondary is one of the best they have the jim thorpe award winner they produce several nfl draft picks over the last couple years i don't think they're going to be able to throw the ball 
So if we don't see them be able to kind of impose their will in the run game and then get to the pass game, I mean, I I like TCU in that game a lot, and they're coming yeah. off a loss in the championship game. So if you had to, you know, tell me which one is going to pull the upset, I think much more likely TCU does than Ohio State. But that being said, it could easily be Ohio State versus TCU in the championship game. Yeah, definitely. I I think that's a great point and one that I meant to make in terms of. I think the score does not really indicate how that pl- game played out against Ohio State because of the big plays they had. And those big plays also completely changed the way Ohio State had to play defensively. Why was Michigan able to break the game open running the ball in the fourth quarter and completely shut the door on Ohio State a- at the end of that game? It was because they had hit three or four deep passes earlier and Ohio State had to completely change the way they were playing defense to try to protect against that deep ball. So the, the run game did not fully get going until after that point. And like you said, if TCU is able to prevent that from happening to begin with, Michigan could get back to the point that we've been talking about them being at all year, which is against a great team, Cade McNamara, or sorry, Cade McNamara, J.J. McCarthy is going to have to make some big plays, big time throws. And I know some people think he did that against Ohio State, but those guys were very wide open. And so I, I still am not sure if he can make those big time contested throws that he's going to have to make against the TCU secondary that is a lot better than the one Ohio State put out on the field a couple weekends ago. So yeah, I think, I think TCU is a really live dog. Ohio State is talented enough where like I just can't write them off. It, it, I don't know. I, I could could end up being very wrong on that as well. But yeah, I think I think both these teams have a pretty good chance to hang around and be competitive. It all depends on to me like how well Stroud is able to get to throw the ball around the yard because we saw LSU do that with Garrett Nussmeyer once he came in. Like they couldn't stop their wide receivers. So I can see a path to where if Georgia doesn't score a lot, then Ohio State's just going to beat them in a shootout or beat them you know by scoring points. So. It's really tough. You know, now we're talking about it. I I think I would rather see it almost be a Georgia like TCU matchup or Ohio State because if I think if Georgia and Michigan play, it's the same team and Georgia's just better. So, yeah, I, definitely. I I really don't want to see that matchup honestly. So, I'm I'm kind of hoping it goes either Ohio State or you know, TCU wins one way or the other. But I think they're interesting, but it's very simple as far as breakdown of how the games are going to go. Yeah, I agree with the Georgia-Michigan thing after how that game went last year. I understand Georgia probably had a better roster last year, but the way those styles match up, Michigan wants to out-physical you, and that, I just don't know that that's possible against Georgia. So I, I agree. I think that would probably be the the title game I would least want to watch. But if we – I mean, obviously, I think I think everyone has to be rooting for Ohio State-Michigan because that, that would just be that, – that would be unreal. I mean, that would probably be the most watched title game like, maybe of all time because they're, they're the most watched regular season game every single year. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think you'd have a lot of SEC fans, and there yeah, are more. Too now. There are more than I think. There are more SEC fans than anybody, and I don't think they would want to see that game. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic there of of would they tune in? Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's gonna. I think it's an interesting playoff for sure. And I'm actually, you know, I think we both wanted to see USC in, which is they're very similar to Ohio State. Um, but I think we got a pretty good college football playoff. All right, let's talk about the Heisman race to kind of cap off this season. We'll take a break after this and then talk about the coaching carousel and the transfer portal kind of looking at next year. Um, I think this year is really interesting because we there wasn't that one-star player that kind of grabbed the bull by the horns early or later, like normal years. I mean, it was kind of in the air last year with, with Bryce, I would even say, but then with his performance in the SEC championship game, it was kind of like, okay... He's the obvious pick. 
But this year, I think you can say there is a front runner, but nobody truly played like the Heisman we were used to seeing. Um, and so, you know, the, the finalists ended up being, I think, Caleb Williams, CJ Stroud, uh, Stetson Bennett, uh, and was it, was it Duggan or? Yeah, I, yeah. Okay, Duggan. Duggan. Um, and so, you know, we have, you know, Stroud and, and Williams are kind of the more flashy players, but then you have Duggan and Stetson Bennett, you know, the, the guys who've stayed in school forever, probably not have a career in the NFL, but just been really good college quarterbacks. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, dichotomy there as well. I think I know which way you're going to lean, but out of those four guys, you know, who do you think you would give it to and, and sh- was somebody left off, I guess, too? Yeah, I mean, first, I don't really understand what the point is of inviting four people like i don't know why we can't just invite five every year just it just seems really weird that we would decide like not to let somebody have that chance to go to new york i understand that there's a vote threshold that has to be crossed i just don't really know if that's necessary like just let the fifth player go that finished fifth in voting because i'm sure he would enjoy it but to me i I think we might have already talked about this so i won't i won't belabor it too much but i think caleb williams is should be like the obvious choice i i think i test wise if you've watched the game you just see the impact he has on usc and you also like if anything i think the conference championship game might be more of an argument to give him the heisman trophy because they were up 17 to 3 and then his hamstring blows out and the game just completely flips And, and i mean that was one of the most embarrassing defensive performances i've seen in a long time and that was the defense he was holding up throughout this entire year. You saw what happened to the USC offense when his mobility was shot, and that was just everything was stagnant. So I, to me, he he would be my my pick for sure. But here, I, I'll give you my I'll give you my top five. I think what my top five would be, and then you can say like what you disagree with and agree with. So I, I think I would go Williams one or sorry, yeah, Williams one. I would still have Bryce two. I just think he's been that good. Now I understand that that's not how the voters are going to view it. Um, I would probably have B. John Robinson three, and then probably Hendon Hooker. Eh, I'd probably have Drake May four and Hendon Hooker five. Um, I, I think that's what I would do. I Stroud's numbers are great. I think we talked about how I don't. I just don't value his complete package in terms of mobility as much as some of those other guys. But I think that would be my top five. I obviously left Stetson Bennett out. I don't know that much needs to be said about that. Um, and then Max Duggan, I think, is great. And he might have had, like, I think if you're looking at the guy that the Heisman voters are going to love, it's probably him, you know, the guy that sticks around, shows a bunch of grit in the title game. I just don't know that he's as good of a player as these other guys. And in the end, that's what this award is supposed to be. Yeah, I mean, I would, I completely agree with your five. And I definitely like that better than the four they selected. I mean, I think this year it's just hard. Like there wasn't that litany of players that are Heisman like players. And I think definitely like Hendon Hooker, if he doesn't get hurt, is going to be in New York. Uh, Drake May, like you said, probably should have been in contention as well. You know, the Bryce thing, we talked about this before the year started. I mean, it, it they're not going to give it to him. Yeah, They're just not. And in Alabama, you know, he, they have to win in order for him to even be there because it's looked it's looked on as a failure and therefore a failure by him because yeah. they didn't make it to the playoffs. So it's it's unfortunate because you know I don't know if I necessarily agree that with he had a better year this year, but just because and it's not his fault. It's just that he didn't have a better year because he didn't have as good of players. So I mean, like the, it just wasn't as good. But that's not necessarily saying that he's not as good as he was last year. But yeah, I would I'm, say he didn't have as good of a year, but he played better. Right. Like that's kind of the distinction yeah. there. It's like he personally played better, but if you asked him which year was better, he's not going to say this year. Right. right. 
I mean, yeah, the stats that he had a lot more big throws last year. Like it just the things that he did last year weren't there this year, but it's not his fault. So yeah, I agree with you. And you know, we we've talked about Stetson Bennett. Like you said, not much to be said. But if you honestly think that he's one of the four best players in college football, you've lost your mind. Like I, I that cracks me up that we reward a guy staying seven years and we're like, well, he stayed seven years and his team's good, so he must be one of the best players in college football. It's like that's not how that works. But anyways, I'm not, I'm not here to roast on yeah. Stetson Bennett. There's at least two players from Georgia I would select. Yeah, on, on his own team, like Bowers and Jalen Carter are like clear him like infinitely so yeah yeah that's all that needs to be said yeah but I think you're right to get back to the point you know Stroud was the kind of the the pick this year for like the Bryce Young last year type deal with big offense big NFL talent but Williams watching him he is the most Heisman like candidate and the one I would say you know this year you know I think playing at USC late he's not on as many games you didn't get to see him but you watch him play and you see how many big plays he makes like the arm talents there, you know, I think definitely he's making himself become one of the highest draft picks, you know, when he comes out. So, yeah, to me, he's the easy choice. It's not really that hard. I mean, if you want to go off winning, which is not what the award is, then it's kind of hard to say because he did lose in the Pac-12 title game. But like you said, if you watch that game, definitely not on him because they couldn't tackle me. So it's it's just unfortunate. I think they lost because it would be a shoe in if they would have won that game and he had a really good performance. Yeah, and it does make it easier because none of the top guys went undefeated. So you're not able to point to C.J. Stroud and be like, well, his team, you know, his team's undefeated. You can't point to Hinton Hooker and say that or any of these other guys at the top. And I think the way I would frame it to like most easily summarize it is I think everyone going into that Pac-12 championship game was saying like, oh, if if Williams wins this game, there's no chance that he doesn't win the Heisman, right? It's completely locked up. But like we talked about with that game, I don't think he played bad. I don't think he did anything in that game to lose the Heisman Trophy. I think that game, in fact, showed his value in in a huge way. So if that was everyone's mindset going into the conference championship, I have a really hard time seeing how that changes based off him getting injured in that game. So we'll, we'll see what the voters do. I expect Williams to win, but I don't think it's an absolute lock. Yeah, I mean, it may not be an absolute law, but I just don't see how you make the case for, like, to me, Stroud is his strongest competition because I, I just can't see him them giving it to Duggan or Bennett. And, you I mean, you know that they're not going to win it. So I think Duggan might finish second. Really? I mean, yeah, I just, me, I, I think voters watch like 10 games a year. And, like, I know like, Josh yeah. Pate's talked about this a lot. Like, he's, you, he was talking about how you would be stunned how little football these right. voters watch. Like, I think they saw Stroud get destroyed in the biggest game of the year i, do, I just don't know if he's gonna finish the high but who knows? right yeah that's what i'm saying is to me stroud has no chance so i think williams yeah. is just the obvious pick and dug in my finish second all right it's pretty simple there we think for the playoff and in the heisman we're gonna take a quick break and we're talking about a much more interesting topic i think going forward with both the coaching carousel and the transfer portal so we'll be right back with that and that'll wrap up our college football segment all right we're now going to talk about something going towards next season instead of kind of focusing on the end of this season in the bowl games. It's kind of become a yearly thing, and I think we'll continue now even more so worrying about not only you know which kids will be transferring and leaving into the transfer portal, but also coaches who are leaving and moving on to bigger and better programs. And, of course, we've seen that for as long as college football has been going, but certainly it seems like more and more this season at the end of the year has been interesting because I don't think we've seen quite as, as big of names as we saw last year and program-wise with Lincoln Riley moving to USC and 
Brian Kelly going to LSU. You know, that was kind of more of the the splash moves with college football playoff contenders. But we do have some you know, interesting ones to talk about, especially because particularly one guy, who it is, and then of the program in the other instance with it being Auburn. But let's start with Dion at Colorado. Obviously, if you don't know Deion, who Deion Sanders is, a former pro athlete, primetime, big personality, went to Jackson State, kind of made an HBCU very prevalent and you know in the minds of people in the college football world. And now he's decided he's going to go take a Power 5 job at Colorado, which arguably is one of the worst to take as far as success um, in the Power 5 group. So, you know, obviously with primetime, he's going to get a lot of recognition solely. Players are want to, I think, be interested to play for him. But what do you think his actual, you know, what what should we expect success-wise out of him at a place like Colorado? And is this, you think, a stepping stone to potentially bigger and better? I think I don't think we are going to view this very differently from Lincoln Riley other than the fact that it's going to be a little harder to get players to go to Colorado than it is to go to USC like to me if the, I, I just think this is such a home run hire for Colorado I mean if you can name any person that has like a point zero 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 one percent chance of going to Colorado like legitimately I'm not sure you can name someone that's a better hire than Dion and so yeah, it, it, is Dion going to have him in the playoff in a couple years? Like, I don't expect that. But this, especially for Colorado, you mentioned they're 1-11. They've got basically no talent on this roster. For this type of program to make this hire, they they are going – I mean, in the past two years, Deion Sanders has brought more four- and five-star recruits to Jackson State than Colorado has recruited. So, clearly – Dion is going to pull guys in. And in this world where the portal can completely change your roster in a year or two, I see no reason why Dion can't have that pull, especially when guys were willing to go play with him at Jackson State. I mean, yes, Colorado is not a, a great place to play, but it's a, it's a power five job. You have a, at least a chance to make the playoff there, even if the roster is in really rough shape right now. And just based off of what everyone is saying in the media – People are already saying for this class, look out early signing day. There's going to be some surprises that go to Colorado. Look out in the transfer portal. Some of these best guys are going to go to Colorado. And it just seems like there was a very big disconnect from the media, which seems to think that he's going to get a ton of these talented players and quit versus the administrators that were thinking about hiring him this past year. Because if you look at the reaction and what people think is about to happen, I see no reason why some of the bigger programs shouldn't have considered him for for one of their positions uh, this offseason. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And the the skepticism is that Colorado is the perfect program to take a chance on him because you're not going to get a high-level coach X's and O's system-wise to come in there and change the program. You're just not. It They needed somebody like Dion who was going to – you know, encouraged talent to come to Colorado because of who he is, not because of the system and the name that he is coaching for. Because it's not a USC where players want to come play there. It's more like, oh, I want to go play for Dion, and, you know, Colorado's nice enough to where it's okay to go there. And, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think it's more of like we don't want to take a chance on Dion, and it flames us for some of these bigger programs. But if, like, and we both think, I think if he shows success here, that's going to obviously open the door for him to go somewhere else. 
But yeah, I think this was a home run hire for Colorado. I think as far as his entrance goes, I I think I like his coaching style as far as like, you know, he seems to be one of the few who still, you know, demands discipline, is very like, this is the program that we're running. We have high expectations. I thought his whole opening speech was kind of melodramatic with the, you know, we've already got some spots taken. I brought my luggage with me and here's your new quarterback. And pretty much Jackson State is coming to take over Colorado because to me that's very dismissive of the Colorado guys. And it's also saying like, well, my way works. But overall, I think his the way he, is, he runs things and plus who he is, is going to work overall. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a splash hire because of who he is. If Colorado hired anybody else, we don't even pay attention. But that and that's enough within itself is that Colorado is actually re, uh, you know relevant because Dion is there, so that's a win already. Yeah, I mean we can we can have a discussion like people can have a discussion. You know, oh, should Auburn have hired him? Like I think that's a legitimate discussion where you could have you know people on both sides that say, well, do you want somebody more more experienced and more legitimate college college football head coaching experience? But for Colorado, I mean, who else were they going to get that is going to create anything like this around the program? And you know. At this point, if you had to throw out a rough guess, in in the next six years, how many programs do you think it's possible, like even the smallest percent chance, how many programs do you think there are that can win the national championship? I mean, 10, 12? 10, maybe 15, yeah. like depending on, you know, there's some programs that are probably, like I, I would still probably have to include like, a Miami or, you know, I'm not going to be biased and say Florida. So like, you know, group those together, like the programs like have those big names. Like I think in a six year span, you might have to include those. But the point being like, I think Dion is in that group. If you over a six year span, I'm not saying he will, I'm not saying he's going to get close, but I can't name another coach that I actually think at Colorado would have a legitimate chance to. And it's not to say that he's a great X's and O's coach. It's not just, but college football, it's all about talent. And we've talked about that forever. Like you, I've talked to you before. Nick Saban is not an amazing in-game coach, but it, it doesn't matter because they develop their talent so well and they acquire so much talent that talent, talent wins out at the college level. I mean, that's what we've seen with Georgia over the past couple of years. They're the most talented. They're going to have the most success. And with how many guys want to play for Dion with the effect that he has going into a living room where the parents of these kids are going to stare at him like they're they're staring at some, you know, famous celebrity because I guess that's what he is. It, he just has a different effect than I think really any other coach does. And I I just think that there there is a chance this goes extremely well. Now the question I will ask you is if I gave you over under three years he's at Colorado, what are you taking? I mean, I think it depends on success. I and I, I can't forecast that. That's what's so difficult. And what I was going to ask you, but you kind of answered that, is like, what do we expect success is going to be? Because the Pac-12 is going to be changing. So, I mean, USC and UCLA will be out. And if he stays there long enough for that, then Colorado could be one of the front runners. But it's if they're successful quickly like Lincoln Riley, then under three years. I mean, probably about that time. But if it takes a while to get up to any sort of relevance, then longer than that. But he, it all depends on how he's viewing it too. Because if he's viewing it as a pit stop to the next place, then you know he's going to try to get out of there as quickly as possible. But if he's actually looking to build a contender at Colorado, then and show like, oh, I, it's me. I can turn any program into a national spotlight. Then who knows? He might stay there for a good long while. But 
you know, if you had to, if you had to ask me, I probably think this is a stepping stone to somewhere better. Yeah. And I don't, let's just put it this way. I don't think he chose Colorado because he loved Colorado. I think that was the power five option that he had. And that's not to say, you know, that's not a diss on Colorado, but I, I don't think that he looked and was like, oh, you know, I'm trying to build this for a 20 year program. I think he said, I think I can still go win there and I'm going to go prove it. And if he has a ton of success in a couple of years, well, if he has a ton of success at Colorado, I mean, how how on earth is he not going to have success at a bigger job, right? I mean, if, he, if you can turn that program around, I'm not sure there's a program in the Power Five that you can't turn around, especially when guys are now going to see the track record of what he already did at Colorado. I mean, that's going to be two different coaching stints where in two years, he completely changes the perception of that program. So that's not to say it's 100% going to happen, but I would really not be surprised at all if in like two years we're, we're talking about this guy for some big time jobs. And at that point, you know, depending on which of these coaching hires flop in this cycle, like I wonder, like, you know, not, and I think Matt Rule will work out. I think Hugh Freeze is going to have Auburn in the top 20 every year. But if those don't work out, I do think you're going to have some of those fan bases looking back and saying like, man, if, if we had pulled the trigger on that, then would we have been ahead of the curve? Now, now whatever big program is looking for a coach is going to be going after him if he has success at Colorado. It's so interesting because I don't know what Dion wants out of this. Like, is is he in this to kind of build up the Dion brand and like, oh, look how good of a coach I am? Because if that's the case, it to me, it's not really a matter of where he goes. Like, he's almost bigger than any program he's going to... Because, you know, some coaches want to make it to a program to say they've made it. Like, oh, I'm, I, I'm so good. I, I get to be the coach at Alabama. But for Dion, he's bigger than all of that. So it's like his Florida name, State might be the one spot. Florida State, that might yeah. Be he carries more weight than almost any program name is going to give him. So that's what's interesting yep. is like, is he content being at a place like Colorado? Because it's not necessarily going to be a bigger spotlight for him at, you know, I don't know, the, you know, Auburn. Let's take Auburn. Like the spotlight is just going to be is always more focused on Dion than the program he's at. So that's what's interesting here um, for Dion. But like you said, I definitely think he has the program skills and the recruiting talent to get Colorado to relevancy. Wouldn't I be surprised if they're challenging for the Pac-12 at least, you know, several of the years that he's there until he moves on. So that's what's interesting about it is that I think we're seeing a shift in in the way you hire coaches now is that who can who can get you talent? Because it's all about talent require acquirement and retention. And we're about to talk about that with the transfer portal here coming up. But it really is a battle now to see which coaches can keep players and get players in. Yeah. And I think when you think about why, why did Auburn not go after Dion? Why did Nebraska not go after Dion? And I think I think this might apply more to Auburn is like you said, Dion's gonna come in and he's gonna run things his way. Like he he is going to be the center of that program. And I'm not sure that the bigger programs are ready to do that, are ready to give him the reins and say, like, you're in control of everything. Now, I and I, I we've kind of jumped around this so far. I, I think if I was at Auburn, I would have offered Dion the job. I, I think I just think he's that good of a recruiter. I think he might be one of the only people in the country that can actually walk into a house in Alabama and have a chance to win a recruit out instead of Nick Saban. Like, I think that's that's the way I would view that. But at the same time, Auburn and, you know, their booster situation, I think a lot of people know about that. 
they're not going to be as likely to give the keys to a guy and say, you're fully in control. Everything here is yours. And I think that's what he was looking for. I think that's what he needs to run the program in the way he wants to. And I don't know. I mean, if I, I think if a big job opens in the next couple of years, he'll take it, but it's going to be on his terms. It's going to be um, letting him run the program the same way he's going to at Colorado. And there are probably going to be some schools that are tur- turned off by that, even if it's the way that they can get to the most success. Yeah, I mean, we, we broke it down pretty well. Like he, His name is good enough to attract anyone, and he can build a program just off of that. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out at Colorado. Um, all right, let's move on to the very team that you mentioned, and that is the Auburn Tigers. Uh, it's It's been interesting last couple years within the coaching ranks, obviously with Harson taking over from Alzheimer's and then everything that happened there. And then, you know, Cadillac kind of having his moment in the sun and getting the Auburn family reignited and, you know, the energy back, if you will. And then they hire Hugh Freeze. And we can kind of get into the fit there, the personality-wise. But let's start with the X's and O's because, to me, from a football perspective, it makes sense. I mean, he is a lot like Gus Malzahn, who had success there. And he's a really good offensive mind. He had a lot of success at Liberty. From just purely a football perspective, what's your take on the hire for Auburn? Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, like you said, I think that the Malzahn comparison is fair. I think he is, I I would consider him an upgrade from that just because I think he has shown the ability to bring in more talent. Now, the legality of that in the past, I don't know that we have those answers, but he has been able to bring in more talent than I think Malzahn was able to. And I think he's a really good offensive coach. He's shown the ability to develop a quarterback like Malik Willis in his time at Liberty after his transfer from Auburn. I think it makes sense. And I know you kind of asked me the football side of things. I think the way this blows up is if he does something stupid again off the field. And I have no idea how to project that. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Like, I don't know how to guess the likelihood of him messing up again, but I think if he doesn't do anything stupid off the field, I think he's probably going to have this job for a long time. Yeah, to me, this one's pretty simple, right? We don't have to you know, dissect Hugh Freeze at Auburn because he is a lot like Gus Malzahn, but brings in more talent. He's a good offensive mind. I think he's going to win a lot of games if he gets the right personnel in there. This is a really good hire for Auburn from a football perspective. Now, the ceiling, that's the question. But like you said, it's it's not even about, like to me, the, the football stuff is the known. Like, we know he's going to come in and in, in, install a good offense. They're going to be fun to watch. And they'll probably win 9 to 10 games, you know, some years and maybe even challenge for the playoff and beat Alabama. It's the off-the-field stuff, and we can't talk about that a little bit. And I, I'm not making fun of Auburn or Auburn fans just because I'm, I am go to Alabama. I would be saying this if it was Alabama. But I do think it's funny that Auburn, you know, seems to kind of take this, like, Auburn family mindset, this – kind of like moral high ground that Auburn is built around. Like we're, 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 you know, man of, we're blue collared, you know, we're, we, we stand together and, you know, that was kind of the Cadillac energy. And then they hire Hugh Freeze who is about as far away as you can get from that in his, you know, past coaching, you know, stops and, and a very religious man. Yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. And I, I, I have to read this tweet, and I saw this on Twitter, a response to it. And I, I genuinely, there's no way they did this as a joke. There's no way. I, I, if they are, if this is a meme and this is a subtle like callback to his past, then I applaud Auburn. So they 
The caption for the tweet says, committed to oh, each other for Auburn. Committed to each other for Auburn. And then it's a quote from him. He said, when your commitment to something is greater than your feelings, that's when you really get the results. And I'm sorry, but that is the most hilarious thing to ever be posted on an account about a coach who's just been hired. Because if you want to talk about commitment being greater than your feelings, well, I mean... I'm not going to get into the specifics, but just go look at Hugh Freeze's past, and that quote is very ironic. So that's what is going to be interesting yeah, to he see. he had some strong feelings sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you would think, you know, the biggest commitment you're ever going to make is your marriage. And, well, I, like I said, don't want to get into the specifics, but I think his feelings kind of ruin that. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's funny to me that – and I know Auburn fans are mad about this, so I'm not saying they're, like, changing all of a sudden being like, oh, it doesn't matter – because I think they are mad about the hire as far as the off-the-field stuff goes, and rightly so. But it's just going to be interesting to see, just like Carson was not a fit at Auburn, I think Hugh is a fit at Auburn. It's football-wise, personality, it's fun. It can kind of be in, you know the, the kind of the upstart little brother to Bama like Malzahn was. But it's going to be interesting to see if he's in a very similar boat to Harson, where the fan base and culture does not match the coach. Yeah, and I think this kind of goes into a broader discussion about like, how, if you're a fan, like if you're an Auburn fan here, how to approach this. I think, you know, the Browns kind of dealt with the same thing when bringing Deshaun Watson in. And it's hard because I do think there, like, there's a, like, I'll give you an example. I was playing, I'm in like year 10 of a dynasty on NCAA 14 that I've been playing for like years. I'm playing as Florida. It's auto-generated players. I don't know any of the players, but I still enjoy it because the, the jerseys say Florida and they're wearing blue and orange. I think that's true for most fans, right? Auburn, there's still the fans. You should not like, I don't think you should abandon your Auburn fandom because you're not cheering for the coach. You're cheering for the colors. You're cheering for the logo. You're che- that's who you've aligned yourself with. And obviously I think the gray area is when you get into, okay, well, if I'm cheering for Auburn to win, I'm cheering for Hugh Freeze. That's, that's kind of the problem. And it's probably easier with a player. Cause what I would say with Watson is like, okay, I probably wouldn't buy a Deshaun Watson Jersey, but I'm going to like, if I'm, a, if I was a Browns fan, I would cheer for the Browns. It's probably harder with a coach. I guess you could say you wouldn't buy a Hugh Freeze t-shirt, but it's it's definitely a murky situation. And I would understand Auburn fans being a little conflicted on the best way to go about like their support for the program and being super invested in a guy that you you really don't like that much. And you want me to be honest, and, and they'll deny this, but I, Alabama fans do the same thing. Winning cures all. I mean, it's just, oh, it's, yeah. it's just a fact. 100%. Because I, and I, you don't want to know how I know this, is Cam Newton wasn't the most wholesome person. <laughs> he got kicked out of Florida because he was a criminal. If he was, we would have been going back to back to back in Gainesville, yeah, but he exactly. stole a laptop. So. Yeah, so, and guess what? Nobody is mad at Cam Newton at Auburn because he won him a national championship. So if Hugh Freeze comes in and wins games, as long now. I don't want to question, you know, the morality of people. If he does something illegal again, then yes, the winning won't matter. But as long as he keeps his nose clean this time around and wins games, it's not going to matter. That's my yeah, take and on you, it. And you know why the winning cures everything is because we, we I mean, you know, I I like, you know, F- F- Florida again for an example because that's that's the team I'm most passionate about. I like Billy Napier. I like I think he's, you know, a good guy, whatever. But the the good memories you have of a football team is like the with the cheering them on with your friends or your family or you know 
being super excited when they win. That has nothing to do with the head coach, right? So, you know, when if Auburn wins the SEC championship, you're not going to be sitting there like, man, you know, this is great, but we hired Hugh Freeze a couple years ago and that just doesn't sit well with me. Maybe there are people like that and I'm just like overgeneralizing, but I don't think that that person, you really have a close enough relationship with to be the main factor in your fandom. Like it's, it's about the people around you. It's about like the, the enjoyment you're getting of watching the game. And I don't know that a coach has that big of an effect on that in the long run when you're when you're just cheering for your team. No, I think that's a good way to close the discussion is that you're always going to associate at the end of the day the coach with the program more than the program with the coach. Because even Nick Saban, it's like, you know, when he wins things for Alabama, it's like, oh, it's Alabama winning. It's not Nick yeah. Saban winning. Like, oh, Dion, it's funny. We just talked about Dion might be the only guy where I don't view it that way, right. which is really funny that we right. just talked about Dion's that. Dion's going to be the one. Yeah, I agree too. So, yeah, if, if Hugh wins, it's going to be, oh, Auburn won. You know, Auburn won. Look at what he did for Auburn. You know, it, it's not going to be, oh, look what Auburn did for Hugh. You know, look at Hugh. So, I mean, yeah, I agree. And I well, purely football-wise, it's a good hire. Like I said, I think Deshaun Watson is a good comp. Not exactly the same. But, yeah. you know, how do you feel about it? I don't know. But, you know, it's I think they will be better with him than they were with Harson. And the last thing, you know what I don't need? I also don't need the three years from now when they make the SEC championship. I don't need the redemption story article. Okay, I like I spare, spare me the Hugh Freeze overcoming adversity, all this stuff. He everything that he has dealt with is the consequences of his own actions. And if he learns from that and becomes a better person because of that, that's great. But Hugh Freeze was not dealt a bad hand. Hugh Freeze, everything he did was his own decision under his own authority under his own program. And so he he has you know. You can say, like, people can argue, has he served his time? Has he not? You know, what what's the rightful punishment for what he did? But I don't need the the underdog story from him because in the end, those those were his decisions that he made and he faced the consequences for him. Yeah, that's a good way to, to end it. I mean, it's, it is what it is, and we'll see what the results have for him at Auburn. All right, the last two I want to talk about is uh, Matt Rule going to Nebraska and Luke Fickle going from Cincinnati to Wisconsin. Different situations, but I think I want to pair them together, both in the Big Ten. Um, you know, Luke Fickle obviously built up a program at Cincinnati, now going to Wisconsin. Matt Rule did the same thing in college, but then went to the NFL, kind of failed there. Of these two hires, which one do you think has a more chance of panning out? I think Rule might have the higher ceiling, but I think Fickle is like the best fit for any coach of the entire offseason. Like if you're if you're talking about a guy that like perfectly meshes in with the Wisconsin brand but might be able to tick it up just a notch, I think Fickle is that guy, right? He he likes to play that same style. He's a physical guy. That's how he built his program at Cincinnati. But he might actually be able to acquire some of the four-star and five-star talent that you need to win at a high level. And at Wisconsin, that's really where they've struggled in the past. Like they've always been a decently well-coached team. You know, they're going to be physical. They're going to run the ball on you. They have a good defense pretty much every year. I think that's pretty much what you're getting with Fickle. But then hopefully you get the upside where he can recruit a guy like Desmond Ritter and develop him over four years into a really good starting quarterback. So for Wisconsin, after, you know, it seemed like they had been stagnant for a little while. I love the hire for them. And I think Matt Rule makes a lot of sense at Nebraska too, because I'm less confident Rule will succeed but I, I really like the hire because rule like what he did at Temple, what he did at Baylor is his staff and he recruited guys that were really athletic. Like they just went and found diamonds in the rough and then developed them into really good players and guys that are still playing in the NFL right now. 
And if you could do that at Baylor, if you can do that at Temple, you should be able to do that at Nebraska. And Rule is also a guy that took over a 1-11 Baylor team, I believe, and turned them around instantly, completely made over that culture. Now, do I think the culture works super well in the NFL? Probably not, but we're back in college now. So I think that's what he needs to be graded on. And Nebraska is a program that needs that kind of overhaul. Like it seems like people around the program thought Scott Frost was was not a very good leader, seemed to be difficult to work with by the end of his tenure there. So I think Nebraska's in the exact same situation Baylor was, where they need a complete program overhaul. They need to bring their bring new talent in, hopefully some that can be dynamic. And that's exactly what Matt Rule's resume shows that he can do. Now, it's Nebraska, so if it's going to be hard, I think, to get the wheels off the ground. But if he can, I, I like the direction in which he can take this program. Right. And I think, you know, we, there's not much discussion. I think, you know, you're, you broke it down pretty well. Not much to add. You know, for Fickle at Wisconsin, I think they'll get back to what they were. I don't really know if they'll be a national championship contender, but they'll be back in the 9-10 win, and he'll do what he did at Cincinnati. I mean, that's that's kind of what Wisconsin is, just a step up from them brand-wise. 12-team playoff. Right. I mean, they would have made the playoff a bunch. Right, so. exactly. He'll get them probably in the 12-team playoff for sure a couple of years. And, you know, I think for Rule, um, it you know, I think it, it's tough for them because they've been bad for so long, and Frost was kind of like the, the chosen one returning home. And that's just such a hard moniker to kind of overcome if you don't, if you can't get it off the ground quickly, Rule's not going to have that stigma. And he's going to be able to come in and be like, all right, you need an overhaul. Let me implement my system. And I think, I don't know if it's going to be instant success, but I do think we'll see better results for Nebraska. So I think every hire was the right hire football-wise for all these four we've talked about, except maybe you could argue, like we said, with Hugh off the field if Dion leaves Colorado, but I think, you know, there's not, I don't really have, you know, the Harson one at Auburn, you know, that just didn't seem to make sense, but all of these seem to make sense for the most part. Yeah. I think I heard an interesting exercise that was like, you, if you have to give a grade to each hire and you can't give the same grade to any of the four, what would you do? And I think the, what my conclusion was, I think I would give Dion at Colorado an A plus. I think I would give fickle an A at Wisconsin. I think I would give Matt Rule an A minus at Nebraska. And then I think I would give Hugh Freeze like a B at Auburn. And, you know, that I Hugh Freeze, I still think that's a pretty good hire. But the, I think the mo, the other three schools like really knocked this out of the park. Yeah. I, I would agree with those grades. And it always depends on results, obviously, but just from what they've proven already. All right. We're going to close today with the transfer portal. I, I don't want to talk about specific players as much. And we may do that later, kind of once everybody gets their name in and they decide. Yeah, since there's a thousand of them, that might be kind right, of Right. And we just don't know where anybody's going. So it's hard to project fit. But I want to talk about the overall state and specifically quarterbacks. And this is why I mentioned last week in my takeaways that I don't think it's it's easy. It's as easy or ever will be again for specific programs to dominate. Because Alabama, they recruit the best talent. So then when people couldn't transfer, they were going to have the best talent every year and could develop that. And if in SEC school, their talent didn't work out, guess what? You're stuck with them. Now, because of the transfer portal, all these good kids at bad schools are coming to these SEC schools that are, you know, competing against Alabama. And they are getting these, you know, kids every year that are going to be able to supplement the ones they have to try to compete. It's just harder to win game after game because of the transfer portal because everybody has good players now. I was listening to Rosillo. I know you do too. Five out of the 50 quarterbacks in the class of 2019 are at the school they chose. Yeah, That's 10%. That's insane. That's, that's 10%. That's so, so you know what that means is that 
all these schools are getting an upgrade at quarterback at some point. It makes, makes it so much harder. So I think, you know, I guess my question is, I kind of explained it, but do you agree that the transfer portal has is kind of created some of this parity? Yeah, and I think one of the biggest things that you're seeing in terms of the change in team building, and Ohio State, I think, was the first team to kind of do this, is they would tell quarterbacks, like, hey, like you're the number one guy. Come here and compete, and if not, you'll transfer. Like, you saw Joe Burrow go to LSU. Um, you saw Quinn Ewers go to Ohio State and then transfer to Texas. Uh, Florida seems to be taking the same strategy now. They recruited, they flipped Jane Rashada from Miami, who's one of the top quarterbacks in the 2023 class, and just picked up the number two quarterback in the 2024 class on Wednesday. DJ Lagway committed to them. And one of those guys is probably not going to play that much at Florida. Like, they're going to have to compete against each other. They're only one year apart. But I think what they're telling them is like, hey, if you believe in our development, if you believe in our positional coaches, come here, compete for the spot. We're going to give you every chance you have. And then if you have to go somewhere else that fits your opportunity better, we're going to welcome that decision and we're going to help you along the way. And it it might not feel great to lose that talent, but it's better than never getting it in the first place. And I think that's where these schools are going to have to adopt that strategy, especially when that also allows you to pick between the two. You You can bring two guys in and then figure out which one you like more. So I don't know why you would not want two shots at it. And I think that's where we're going to see this go more and more. We're going to have some bad players or sorry, some good players from small schools move up. We're going to have these second string guys at bigger schools move down and it's all going to kind of even out. That's the smart thing to do for these big programs is just amass talent. And then you literally, because of the transfer, it's almost a good thing. You don't have to keep them. You can be like, okay, move on. We picked between the two of you. We picked our guys who we want to stay. You can move on. It's unfortunate for the ones who lose them to the bigger schools. But I think, you know, to wrap up the discussion, for me at least, it it's hurting Alabama and schools like that and helping them because they can go handpick talent and – kind of build out their roster, but it's also hurting them in the sense that these other schools can get their kind of leftovers and they also can compete every year now. Like they're going to be able to get players that keep them relevant and not just be stuck because they can't recruit. Yeah. And what we've talked about in the past five to 10 years has been when you've got a huge staff, when you've got a bunch of guys that can recruit, you're going to be in a better position. That's why, you know, Florida hired so many guys in their staff. That's why Alabama has so many assistant coaches. What's going to happen now is personnel departments are going to become one of the most important things you can possibly have in a program. Because think about it, a thousand guys entered the portal. Do you expect like 10 analysts to be able to sit down and break down a hundred guys each in three days to figure out who they need to offer and who they need to wait on? Like this is something that's going to take a massive amount of people and you're going to have to have somebody, I think that separately in charge of that to make this work. So the schools that invest in that early on and make this a priority, I think are going to see results. And I really think this is a huge opportunity for schools to take advantage of a changing landscape and get ahead of some other schools that might not have the funds or the means to make that happen. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think we're already seeing a lot of schools do that now. Like it's, it's full on, not just the top ones who are taking advantage. It's everybody. And I, I think, you know, it's especially important for quarterbacks because it, it's you know it's it's like the NFL. You you don't have a good you don't have a good team in the NFL if you don't have a good quarterback, and you can instantly change your program for a season if you get one of these good quarterbacks. So I think that's where we're headed, and it's going to keep more and more teams relevant, and that's that's an interesting development. All right, we got about twenty seconds. You got any final words here, Soli, or you good? Nope, that's good. That was my flu game. All right, <laughs> sounds good. Yeah, Soli's a little under the weather, so I appreciate him being willing to do it today. Uh, we're going to have one closing segment after this. We want to thank Sully for coming on. Like I said, that might do it for college football for a while. So thanks, Sully.
All right, to close out today's episode, I am joined by the best brother in the Miller clan, and that is Charlie. Charlie's been on here before, but we're bringing him back to do the draft this time. Uh, The draft today is holiday traditions. We're entering into the Christmas season, of course. We're a couple weeks away from Christmas. We're probably going to do several Christmas-themed drafts in general coming up, or holiday, if you will. So tonight, I thought I'd bring Charlie on to do, draft our favorite traditions, if you will. Well, I guess they don't have to be favorites, but uh, yeah. just see who has the best lineup. So, Charlie, I'll let you have the first pick. We're going pretty generic here, but what's the first pick of the holiday tradition draft? So, you know, I mean, most people's favorite holiday is, uh, you know, going to be Christmas, of course. You know, there's, there's, there's too many things to like about Christmas. And it's hard not to be have a you know bubbly attitude around Christmas and be happy and joyful. So my first entry is opening presents on Christmas Day. In the morning, you know, you wake up and you get up in the morning. Brothers could probably jump on you, wake you up, get you out of your bed. I've done that before to y'all. And you know, opening presents is always just one of the most wonderful times of the year. And, and Christmas Day, it's it's really exciting, you know. It, it it gives you joy that you, even adults can understand and have never had in a long time. I think that's a good first pick, and uh, like you said, Christmas is kind of the the poster child for holidays. So why not go with the Christmas tradition? Opening presents on Christmas morning, Christmas morning, I think is a good one. I'm gonna stay with Christmas, uh, but it's a little different, and that's just the Christmas tree mm-hmm. and decorating a Christmas tree. To me. That's the that's the logo of holiday traditions. That's the Jerry West, if you will, uh, for the holiday tradition league. When you think of what am I doing for a, a holiday tradition wise, everybody's putting up a Christmas tree. It's even after Thanksgiving, getting it up sometimes before. So to me, that's kind of the star player, the the figurehead mm-hmm. of of holiday traditions is a Christmas tree and getting to decorate it. Yeah, because after Thanksgiving, you know, it's always a rush to put up your Christmas tree because it's like, you know, people get so excited about Christmas. You got to put something to, you know, symbolize it. And it's such a tradition, you know, it's very, very fond among many, many people. All right, Charlie, let's, what's your number two? Um, so I thought about it. I was, I was, uh, deciding in between two traditions, but I ended up going with a Thanksgiving Turkey, getting a Thanksgiving Turkey on Thanksgiving because, you know, I, you can't have Thanksgiving without a turkey. It's the mascot of it. You know, it's, you know, it, you know, first of all, you're spending time with your friends, but then you got to eat. And when, when you eat, it's turkey. It's always turkey. It's like one of the best, one of the best food of the year for sure. Yeah. I think one, two Christmas Thanksgiving is a pretty good uh, decision. And like I said, turkey on Thanksgiving, it might be the second to me, the second most thought of tradition holiday wise you got to have turkey on thanksgiving you got to put up your christmas tree those go hand in hand so and you could even include the whole meal of thanksgiving but Mm -hmm. certainly turkey is kind of the poster child for that that's a good good second round pick uh for me i'm going maybe kind of unconventional here but i think a lot of flair uh kind of a star player if you will with a lot of potential and a lot of people really i think get behind this tradition and that is the new year's eve ball drop right mm, everyone's always yeah. standing up on staying up on new year's eve counting down the new year uh and then when the ball drops the countdown i think that's a really cool tradition obviously in new york city and times square all the people there all the different cities 
Uh, and then you even got, you know, at when his clock strikes midnight, the find somebody to, to give a little kiss to, you know, I think a lot of people, mm-hmm. it's a, that's a thought for a lot of people nowadays. So uh, I'm going to go New Year's Eve ball drop with my number two. Yeah, uh, Christmas Eve or not Christmas Eve, New Year, New Year's Eve parties are pretty lit. I will say, you know, you get your, you know, with us, we get, you know, the sparkling grape juice, go to times. You staying up till 12 o'clock, go on a school night or something like that, you know. Always, always fun on New Year's Eve. Very fun time. Normally go to a party or something like that. All right, Charles, let's hear your third one. My third pick is I didn't do this at two. This is the other one I was deciding with. I I did this. I did pick it at number two because it's trick-or-treating. Because some people don't go trick-or-treating anymore. You know, you get older, you normally don't go. But, you know, trick-or-treating is one of those things. It's, it's so popular among so many people. And, I mean, even though, you know, adults don't go, I mean, still teenagers do, like 18-year-olds plus maybe. But it's like, I think trick-or-treating can be one of the most memorable times of the year if you, you know, you got, you know, hitting up all the rich houses, you know, getting the king-size candy bars. You always talk about that with your friends, you know, what houses to hit up and stuff like that. It's like, you know, it's just very festive and you get into it. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. Well, you know, you've, you've gone kind of the major – uh, although Christmas tree may be the major one for Christmas, but Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween, and I think trick-or-treating, just everything it entails because you're getting candy, you're dressing up in a costume. Um, I think that's a lot of people, like even though it's a kid thing, like dressing up in a costume and um, you know going out and getting candy might be the most participated in tradition out of any of them honestly because everyone can do it so that's a really mm-hmm. good yeah. round three pick I, that that made me shouldn't have slid that far for my third one i need an explosive player i need somebody who's going to make the splash play who you know when we're down 14 can get me right back in the game and so for me that's going to be fireworks on the fourth of july literally mm-hmm. an explosive yeah. player and mm-hmm. to me there's nothing like there's so many pros to it, but you, you, a big group can participate. It's very aesthetically pleasing, right? Um, you know, and and it always is something that you look forward to on the Fourth of July uh, is going to see the fireworks at night. So I think that that's one of the best traditions, and it, and it's kind of a a very American tradition as well, obviously, Indeed. since it's celebrating the Fourth of July. Of course, you know, Fourth of July. It is truly. I think. I think it might be one of my favorite holidays because you know it's in the summer. You've already had a good time for the past couple months, and you know why not go and spend it with your family? You know, go on the river, maybe. You know, riding a boat, watch the fireworks from the lake. It's a. It's a really nice time. You know, and it's. I think it's a nice way to almost wrap up your summer. I mean, it's a pretty nice time. You couldn't agree more. All right, let's get into the last two for both of us. All right. Number four, got to end it off with the, you know, the four major holidays, Easter. You can't have Easter without an Easter egg hunt. And, you know, with an Easter egg hunt always comes with the the money, the money. You get, you know, the parents always be putting fat stacks of money in them eggs. I remember, remember when we had one at our grandmother's house, I found the gold egg. That was like $20 in that. And I was so excited. And, you know, Easter egg hunts just. Oh, that's that's all I used to look forward to on Easter when I was, you know, when we were growing up and, you know, just all the eggs, find all of them. It, may, it gets you excited, you know, it gets you excited. It's like a it's like a challenge almost. So you feel like you have to go do that and search out for. It. So Easter is a very nice time of the year. Yeah, it's a really strong four pick. I mean, Easter egg hunting, 
you know, it, it, you're definitely staying on more of the uh, the child side. You know, are going to find many adults Easter egg hunting. But like you said, for a kid to get money, that's that's a surefire way right there to get you some of the best eggs. And like you said, it's fun going and hunting for them. So, yeah, really good four pick there. Uh, for mine, let's see here. Where where direction do I want to go? I guess I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Halloween. I haven't had a Halloween one yet, so. I, I'm not good at this one, but I do think it's really cool, especially when you see a good one. I'm going to go pumpkin carving. Uh, mm. There's nothing like a good jack-o'-lantern. Uh, you know, that's one of the, the trademark things of Halloween. Uh, so just a tried and true, you know, KG veteran player. You know, he's not going to be a wow factor necessarily, but, you know, it's kind of gritty. You know, you got to get in there and get all the seeds out and everything. So not everybody mm-hmm. may enjoy it, but the finished product, you know, once he works on his game and you get everything sculpted out, you got a really good finished product at the end. And that's, that's what I like to build my team around. So I'm going to go pumpkin carving with number four. Pumpkin, pumpkin carving is um an interesting pick. Uh, it's uh, I don't know if it's one that a lot of people would pick. Like he said, you know, it's not for everybody. A lot of people don't, you know, do pumpkin pumpkin carving sometimes i like it i like when you know we made one make a spider-man one and you're like you're saying the finished product it it is very aesthetically pleasing to look at you know it gets your house decorated i mean it's like it's doing something fun and also you know like you know getting your house decorated at the same time doing you know killing two birds with one stone yep for sure all right let's hear your last pick my last pick is going back to christmas Setting out cookies for Santa, cookies and milk for Santa. Such a, it's such a, you know, I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, you're, it's on Christmas Eve, you're excited. And that night, right before you go to bed, you know, you're like, mom, dad, can I sell the cookies and milk for Santa? They're like, of course you go do it. And it, it just adds a little bit more just energy, you know, going into the next day, you don't want to go open presents or, you know, go to your stockings and, you know, eat with your family, whatever. And it's just it's just a perfect way to finish off the night before Christmas. Yeah, that's a really good last pick. Like you said, it just you know obviously, you know without breaking any news here, I won't spoil anything. But to keep that tradition alive of of believing in Santa and uh, you know it's it's always something fun to do. The best the best things are when you can get excited about them, even if you know they may not be real. So. Uh, leaving out milk and milk and cookies for Santa is certainly something that is is fun to do for children and parents alike too, especially if they're the ones consuming them. All right, mm-hmm. for the fifth and final pick, I'm gonna go quirky here. I need, I just need a, a weird a weird player on my team, and this is a tradition that I'm not even really sure how it started. I didn't look it up, um, but I'm gonna go the Groundhog Day tradition of the Groundhog mm-hmm. seeing his shadow or not. I just think this is a really interesting tradition because. Like I said, don't know how it started, but how did we how did we determine that we're gonna let a groundhog walk out of its little cage? And if it sees its shadow or it doesn't see its shadow, that determines whether or not winter is ending early or spring is coming early. Um, you know, I don't know. That's a weird tradition. So I just kind of need a, a an oddball on the team, kind of round it out. And I think that is a pretty it's a pretty cool tradition, even though not everyone celebrates it. But you know, everybody always wants to know did the groundhog see a shadow or not. So to round out my my, my team, I'm picking the groundhog, uh, seeing his shadow or not on, on Groundhog Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, any honorable mentions, Charlie, that you had that we didn't talk about that maybe uh, we can add on just a, just for fun? You kind of hit on it with the, the 4th of July. But on mine, I had a, a 4th of July cookout. You can't have 4th of July without a cookout. You know, hot dogs, 
burgers. You know, it's not complete without the without the cookout. Uh, that's a that's a good that's a good point. I won't know if that you know tradition wise if everybody would consider that one. It's just kind of something you do. But yeah, I mean, grill out, go to the lake, even maybe for us. So uh, the only other two I really had that we didn't mention were uh, football on Thanksgiving. I think that's pretty synonymous. That's, whether that's you're, a pretty big one. Whether you're watching football or playing football. And then the other one I had was Christmas caroling, which I know not everybody partakes in, but it's pretty synonymous with Christmas as well for people to go caroling. So, all right, that's going to wrap up our draft. Uh, Charlie, if you have your team right in front of you or if you can remember it, kind of go through your picks again. Okay, I got you. Um, so my first pick was opening Christmas presents on Christmas Day. Number two, Thanksgiving turkey. Number three, trick-or-treating. Number four, Easter egg hunt. And number five, setting out cookies and milk for Santa. That's that's a really good team. My number one was Christmas tree, decorating it. Two, New Year's Eve ball drop. Three, the fireworks on the 4th of July. Uh, number four was pumpkin carving for Halloween. And then five, the groundhog seeing his shadow. So I think those are all really good. I, I don't necessarily know if I would have taken any over the ones we picked. Maybe, you know, like I said, the groundhog day is a little outside the box. But overall, I think a really solid draft. So appreciate you coming on, Charlie. I uh, hope you enjoyed it and hope everyone enjoyed uh, listening. We'll certainly try to continue to do these. And if you have any suggestions, like I keep saying, then, then I'd love to to have yours. So thank you everyone for listening to, to this episode and uh, we'll try to see you next time.